In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Twenty years ago this very month, I made my first trip overseas to Europe. 120 students from Baylor University traveled to Stockholm, then on to Copenhagen, before we settled down to study for about six weeks, living within the close of Westminster Abbey. At that time, I was working on my first degree in sacred music, and I was also a very proud Southern Baptist. Prior to my departure for the trip, several friends told me to be sure to go to Evensong at the Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, I had no idea what Evensong was. When we arrived at the Abbey and had gotten settled in, I started to explore the area around the Abbey, and walking past a placard, noticed that that afternoon, a little bit later, there was going to be Evensong at 4 p.m. I thought to myself, well, let me go today, and then this is off my list for the rest of the trip. Around 3.30, I left the dormitories where I was staying and made my way around the Abbey complex until I was standing in front of the gate that leads to the great western door. There was a small queue of people forming, and I took my spot behind the last person. Not long after I arrived, the marshal, who was wearing what looked like a scarlet academic gown, came, unlocked the gate, and asked us to follow him. Rather than taking us up the center of the abbey, we were escorted up the north aisle, and from there I could see memorials and graves, markers of famous composers, historical figures cast as marble statues, and could see some of the ancient stained glass windows, some of which depicted both the history and former deans of the abbey. We paused for a few moments, before we were taken to the south transept of the abbey and asked to basically fill in each seat. Eventually, both the south and the north transepts were filled with visitors. Now, I was somewhat awestruck by not only what all I saw, but also by what all I didn't understand. Most of the congregation were tourists, who, like me, had either been told to come or reckoned that this was a cheap way in which to view a substantial portion of the Abbey Church. As Big Ben, which you could faintly hear, struck the four o'clock hour, a distant yet mesmerizing sound came from the far end of the Abbey. It was the choir, and they were singing the introit to the service. When that piece was finished, the organ roared to life, and as if on cue, the whole congregation stood for the procession of the choir, the members of the Order of the Bath, and the dean and chapter. They took their places in the choir stalls, and just like on all other successive days that they pray evensong, they began chanting the opening versicle in response, O Lord, open thou our lips. Then came something I was totally and completely unprepared for, the chanting of the psalm. It was music unlike anything I had ever heard before. 
The psalm that afternoon was Psalm 46. God is our hope and strength, a very present help in trouble. The precision of the chanting of the choir, the rumbling of the organ, the sound swirling around the room, it transported me to some place. And I sat there in a sort of state. I had finally entered the realm of the holy. I was at the threshold of the gate of heaven. I felt that I could simply reach out my hands and grab handfuls of God. I had found a thin place. And it was too short. The service moved so beautifully, but it was far too short. And as quickly as this sense of the divine presence came, it vanished. Like a sunset as the sky grows darker and darker each evening, or smoke that evaporates into the air. I don't remember much more about that service or that day, but I did make a vow that I was going to reconsider everything I thought I knew about Christianity, about liturgy, but most importantly, what I thought I knew about God and his redemptive love. While I was not received into the Episcopal Church until about two years later, that Saturday afternoon in July of 2000 is when I became an Anglican. Many people have had experiences similar to the one I just told you about, perhaps even some of you here this morning. Some people call them mountaintop experiences. Others call them divine encounters. For me, what I encountered was similar to what Jacob had experienced in his vision or dream. A veil that shrouds heaven and earth is parted briefly. A thin place develops where all the reality of God's realm, of heaven and eternity, break forth for a few minutes. Notice that after the experience, Jacob does something. He memorializes the event by erecting a small pillar, anointing it with oil, and giving the place a name, Bethel, which we translate to House of God. We set up monuments too, just like Jacob. From places like Westminster Abbey that has had daily services, even during wars and pandemics, since 960, to this parish church built only a generation ago. And we leave a mark here to remember. Jacob, putting oil on the stone, not only anoints that stone, but it would have changed the color of the stone, making it different than all the other stones that would have been right there. It would have been recognizable to Jacob when he returns. But it also becomes a sacred symbol, a reminder of an event that changed him forever. Often, we as a church are asked, why do you need this building? Or, 
Why do you need buildings that are so beautiful or so expensive or filled with priceless treasures? And usually, the people who ask that follow up by saying that the poor need money, or we could build houses for low-income people, or we could give away money to orphanages, like one in Uganda that a friend of mine visits each year. On one hand, they are right. We do need to help the poor, feed the hungry, teach people who would be deprived of a good education. But we also need markers. These buildings and libraries and schools and institutions help become a silent witness and reminder to us and to those who are not Christians of the redemptive work of Christ. This building is a tool that we can and should use, and it is a marker of the sanctification of space, of time, and of matter. Holy events happen here. We set markers and memorials up all around us. Some of us here today are wearing a wedding ring, a sign of love, commitment, and fidelity. We celebrate the birthdays of our friends and family. Our national life commemorates important days in our history, like Independence Day, and we remember those who have died in the service of this country on Memorial Day. And we, as a church, have a whole calendar of days for us to remember, study, and learn throughout our liturgical year. All of this is well and good, but one thing is crucial. We must ask God to bless and sanctify these memories. And then we must guard against the nostalgia of the event. Any encounter with God must propel us forward and not trap us in the memories of yesterday or a Saturday afternoon 20 years ago. <clears throat> it is through God alone that an ordinary stone becomes something more. It is through God alone that an ordinary place is transformed into the gate of heaven. God transforms the ordinary into that which is extraordinary. And what has been transformed is never the same again. In a few minutes, we are going to be having communion. Ordinary bread has been blessed and consecrated and has become for us the body of Christ. It is not ordinary anymore. It might look that way, but faith, our outward sense befriending, makes our inward vision clear. And so, too, we are not ordinary any longer. From the moment of our baptism, through our confirmation, and each time we receive the Holy Eucharist, the blessed bread of the sacrament, and the blessed wine of the new covenant, we are transformed. We are changed to become more like Jesus every day. One of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, preached a sermon at Solemn Evensong 
at the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford on the 8th of June, 1941, during the heat of the Second World War in Europe. That sermon, which is now commonly known as the weight of glory, ends with Lewis reminding us about not being ordinary people. Here is what he said. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins, in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parries merriment. Next, to the blessed sacrament itself. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ very latitat, the glorifier and the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden. <laughs>